This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. One of the premises of this podcast, and everything we do at Evolver, frankly, is that we're in the midst of a consciousness revolution, a reimagining of what it means to be human. You can see signs of it everywhere if you know where to look, and don't get distracted by the clanging death moans of the old order heaving the heavy gasps of its collapse. Chances are that if you're listening to this podcast, you know what I mean. And like me, you're looking to make sense of this consciousness revolution for yourself and figure out how to embody it, to weave the experience of awakening into your everyday life. It helps to remember that this movement didn't appear out of nowhere. Many came before us, laying the paving stones of the roads we now travel towards some kind of newfangled globalized enlightenment. You can look back 200 years to Emerson, Thoreau, and the Transcendentalists. Then there's the progenitor of American voice, Walt Whitman, who pioneered a distinctly Western form of mysticism that has seeped its way into every pore of popular culture. And of course, there's a slew of genius mystics like Madame Blavatsky, Rudolf Steiner, and Alan Watts. In the midst of the last century, another movement took all of these threads, as well as the modernist avant-garde arts, and wove them into a radical new fabric that continues to exert a powerful influence. It was called the Beat Generation, and at its center were three writers, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and William S. Burroughs. It's hard to overstate just how strange and marginal the beats were considered at the time, and how profound and pervasive their impact has been. They planted the seeds for open sexuality, psychedelic consciousness, meditation, yoga, environmentalism, green witchery, crazy hairstyles, and the whole romantic idea that innovation comes from breaking the rules and disrupting the status quo. You can even trace the current schism between blue and red states to the beats and the cultural shifts they set in motion. The beat scene led directly to the hippies of the 60s and the punks of the 70s, as well as the new age of the 70s and 80s. You might just call the whole thing the counterculture, because there was a powerful through line here, a focus on awakening from the hazy dream of materialism and a radical exploration of self towards the fullest expression of your own extraordinary potential, which the mainstream would prefer you keep repressed. A move from conformity to love. The beat scene was indeed a scene, a relatively small group of people who lived together, slept together, influenced each other, supported one another. It grew over time, but never really got that big. And while it began as a literary movement, 
it became so much more than that. The person responsible for its breadth was Allen Ginsberg. Ginsberg became the most famous poet in America, appreciated for his eloquence, honesty, and humor. I remember in the 70s seeing his name in the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary between red cloth-wrapped cardboard covers. But he was also a theorist, a strategist, and the field marshal who directed the troops of radical cultural change, revered by Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Abby Hoffman, and so many others. My guest today, Stephen Taylor, was Ginsburg's friend and collaborator for 20 years. He became Alan's closest confidant, the person he trusted with his most sensitive projects, of which there were always too many. One of them has now, over two decades after Ginsburg's death, been released as a new book, Don't Hide the Madness, William S. Burroughs in Conversation with Alan Ginsburg, which Stephen transcribed and edited at Ginsburg's request. It's an entertaining and illuminating dialogue between two veterans of the cultural activist front lines who had been intimate for 50 years, chatting in the kitchen as if no audience was there, a true window into what these guys were really like. Stephen Taylor is deeply knowledgeable about what Ginsburg used to call secret history, the true but often hidden stories about the roots of our culture. He's also an accomplished author, poet, and musician, and ran the writing program at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa University. As a guitarist, he's performed with everyone from Patti Smith to Marianne Faithful to Don Cherry to Philip Glass. His scores for the dances of Douglas Dunn were recently nominated for a prestigious Bessie Award, and he was a key member of the seminal underground rock band, The Fugs. His ethnography, False Prophet, Field Notes from the Punk Underground, chronicles his years in one of the Lower East Side's classic post-punk bands. And when Evolver got going, I roped him into being senior editor for our webzine, Reality Sandwich, where he managed the flow of articles onto the site for some eight years. Stephen's story is also, in a way, my own story, as I grew up in this countercultural world and we've been good friends for some 30-something years. We share a lot of this history, and to be blunt, we got the same training. I've always appreciated Stephen's nuanced and comprehensive way of telling stories and relating vital information, which makes any conversation with him a treat. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals. And scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, 
as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more. But the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. talk to youngins a lot yeah right about you know the beatles yeah and they kind of know some songs they know some songs yeah but they don't understand the force right of it the greatness there's two things there's the musical greatness okay <laughs> a lot of people get that. i mean jose case in point yeah you know 28 years old deep in his head and return gets the musical greatness of the beatles i assume on some level yes that's a that's a nod the guys at berkeley school of music grad you know, ah, whatever. So the babies get it too. Babies get it. But there's this other greatness. And the other greatness is the cultural impact that the Beatles had exactly. in transforming the consciousness of the planet. Which is the greatness of the beats. Which is the greatness of the beats. Because they were products of the greatest generation, which is Tom Brokaw's book about uh, Americans who came of age uh, during World War II and the big things that they did, the men and the women, that great that greatness in that sense lasted, I think, through the 60s. So the Beatles were great in that sense. It was like they were just, as you said, uh, cutting across all the lines. It's not just pop culture. It's not just uh, music business, just like the Beats. It's not just American literature. Sure, sure, the Beat Generation is the first major American literary movement of the Cold War, but it's not just literature, it's bigger than that. Yeah, so what is the bigger than that? Well, it's the way they hit the culture. Uh, their moment came in 1957 with the, um, the Howell trial, which was followed by the press nationally, where Shigma Ryo, the manager of the City Lights bookstore in San Francisco, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, his boss, publisher of City Lights Books San Francisco, were busted on obscenity by a San Francisco prosecutor because uh, it was illegal to send obscene material through the mail. And Howell, uh, Ginsburg's Howell Book of Poems had been printed in Britain 
And so I had been coming in through the mail and therefore was bustable. It was bustable because? It was obscene. And why was it obscene? Because it talks about homosexuality and uh, and made references to, you know, made references to sex otherwise. Yeah, I once was with Ginsburg in 86 when we were in uh, Serbo, Croatia. You and I, yeah. yeah. We in were, Serbia. We yeah. were in Serbia, yeah. in Yugoslavia. His Albanian translator showed up. Yeah. The guy was translating Howl. Yeah. And the only question Alan had for him was, what word are you using for cocksucker? Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, it's a podcast. Yeah, but it was not deemed obscene. The key, the key thing was... <laughs> oh, it's a podcast, not a radio show. Yeah. Yes, you can, you can say cocksucker on a podcast. The key, the key though, with the, with the Howl trial was they were found innocent because the court found that the book had... It was a freedom of speech, speech issue. The case had been taken up. The defense had been taken up by the ACLU, who were looking for a freedom of speech case to finally crack literary censorship in the United States once and for all. It was a whole series of trials, as you know. I know. You know, because your dad was involved. Yeah. Yeah. The judge noted, the conservative judge noted, this is how the poet speaks. He needs, to, he needs that vocabulary to express himself. And the thing has literary merit and redeeming social value, and is therefore not obscene. The key point being that uh, pornography is meant primarily to titillate. And the primary objective of the poem Howl was not to get people excited about sex. There was a whole other thing going on about the selling out of a generation and the, you know, the American um, uh, corporate takeover of the world and what, what, Four or five years later, uh, uh, Eisenhower would call the military-industrial complex. So that hit. So that hit in '57, and the, the trial was followed by the press. Yeah. Big news. Yeah. Let's let's hang, let's hang on Hal for a second. Okay. Jose, have you read Hal? No. No. Okay. So this is worth mentioning to those of you who are still like hanging with your your Saturn return issues, right? The poem Howl by Allen Ginsberg, which you wrote in 56, right? 55. 55, was like the launching pad for the entire movement of beat, hippie, punk culture that transformed what it is to be an active, engaged person connecting to others and caring for the planet in popular consciousness. It led directly to radical street organizing uh, to stop the Vietnam War. It was a huge cultural thing, much more than it was also a literary thing, beautiful literary thing. It wouldn't have worked so well if it wasn't a powerful literary thing, but it was much more than that. Stephen Taylor, our guest today, was one of the closest confidants to Allen Ginsberg later in his life, as well as at the center of that whole beat culture complex. And it was a scene. It was a really very tightly knit, integrated scene of writers, artists, musicians. And national. And international. And international. Mm -hmm. Global. It became mm -hmm. a global mm -hmm. movement mm -hmm. where Ginsburg was really at the epicenter. Mm -hmm. In many ways, he was, you know, the contact list holder for that scene, connecting people to each other and thinking really strategically about what needs to be done to keep the movement growing step by step from the early 50s all the way through the late 70s, early 80s. And so his impact is, is much more than just as an artist. The consciousness scene, as we now are experiencing it, is a direct outgrowth of that world. 
they did many things. They introduced many ideas that are critical to what's happening today. And they taught a way of personal engagement and action in the culture that is a fantastic model for anybody who cares today about, you know, essentially what's going to be happening here tomorrow. Stephen, I think, understands that aspect of it better than most and teaches it at Naropa Institute. And I guess there's no longer Naropa Institute, Naropa University. University. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now it's been accredited. Yeah. It's probably old school news, mm-hmm. but. And at Wesleyan. And at Wesleyan, right. And at Bronx Community College in the city of University of New York. Right. <laughs> uh, and on the street. And on the street. Yeah. So you're the editor of Don't Hide the Madness, a book by William S. Burroughs in conversation with Allen Ginsberg. That's not strictly true. So it's Don't Hide the Madness, William S. Burroughs in conversation with Allen Ginsberg, edited by Stephen Taylor. Yeah, I made the book. You did make the book. Yeah. You made the book out of old tapes. Yeah. In 1992, Ginsburg hired me to transcribe five days of conversations that he had had with William Burroughs uh, in the spring of 92 at Burroughs' house in Lawrence, Kansas. This was, by the way, typical of the way that that Alan and you did stuff back in the day. Right. Right. He always had some projects going on. Yeah. And he always turned to you to handle them, basically, for in, him. In some cases. I, I mostly played music with him and worked worked on music with him. But uh, occasionally, if we weren't touring and he needed extra help in the office, I would work in the office at, at uh, 437 East 12th Street. Uh, in 1992, David Cronenberg was releasing the Naked Lunch movie based on William Burroughs' novel, Naked Lunch. And the thing was about to come out in London and in Europe. And the producer of the movie and the European press wanted something to uh, publish in Europe and Japan also uh, to uh, coincide with the overseas release of the movie. Uh, But William had had heart surgery the year before and he had broken his hip and he was in his late 70s and he was having a slow recovery. So James Grauerholtz, William's secretary, said, no, no visitors, no, no journalists coming to the house. You know, William needs peace, right? So then the producer and others said, well, what about we send Ginsburg? So the initial idea was that Alan would go, and he said to me, when they pitched the idea to him, I was in the office, he said, if I go interview him, will you transcribe it? I said, yes. So the intention for the publication was a short, a couple of columns for a London Observer magazine of interview, short interview, but Alan being as prolific as you know he was, tape recorded five days and nights of conversation. He was more than prolific. Yeah. He was obsessive. Yes. Yeah. And he understood the importance of documenting personal history. Yes. As part of the bigger project. Yes. Of changing the world. Yes. And that was also part of a larger phenomenon, which is after World War II, the bringing in of the tape recorder, thanks to Bing Crosby. And, uh, and you know, all the poets picking up on it, Paul Blackburn recording all the poetry readings, Lenny Bruce recording everything. There was a whole wave when the recording technology, when manageable recording technology, portable, first came in. Independent cinema with the handheld Bolex, all these things exploded because you had portable equipment, right? And Ginsburg was on that. When we did When we did performances, it was in his contract that everything had to be recorded and he had to be given a tape at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. I remember Bob Dylan at one point gave him a, rec- uh, a tape recorder that shifted a viewer, a yeah. viewer right? Yeah. That, that shifted his own poetic practice from writing things down in the journal to just looking out the window uh, from a plane 
Ah. And recording directly into the tape recorder and then transcribing that. Yeah, he was good at that. Yeah. Yeah. So Alan went out in 1992, spent five days with William, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, going out to the shooting range, going to the movies, talking, talking, talking about the- I'm sorry, going out to the shooting range? Yes. Yeah, Alan and uh, William, one of his pastimes, as he said, this is one of my pastimes. They go to the shooting, they go out to a friend, uh, Fred Aldrich has a farm. And they go out to Fred's farm where they where they can shoot without hurting anybody, and they draw pictures and shoot. So Alan draws a big picture of a Buddha and then shoots it. So this is, for many people, this is an interesting image. If uh, who know who know Ginsburg, you know Alan Ginsburg with a three fifty seven Magnum, you know, <laughs> shooting at the Buddha. Right, that's gorgeous. <laughs> right. If you meet the Buddha on the street, you got to kill, kill him. Kill him. Right? Yeah, yeah. So the arrival of Ginsburg coincided with an exorcism where William had, uh, was exercised of the demon that he believed had possessed him for his whole life. That is one of the most powerful things about this book. Mm-hmm. And it's, he talks specifically about the shaman yeah. who performed the exorcism. Yeah. Or, I mean, exorcism is almost like a Christian, Christian yes. way of framing yeah. the experience. It's, that a, he healing it's a healing ceremony. It's a healing ceremony. ceremony. Yeah. Where Burroughs' sense of being possessed by this being, or this being, the ugly spirit, the ugly spirit that is with him, is expelled. Yes, and the shaman is actually in the book. Yes, he, he follows do- up like a doctor. Right, <laughs> comes the next day. How's everybody doing? <laughs> <laughs> so, who is this shaman? Melvin Batselli. He was a Dine, a Navajo uh, water bearer. He had all the credentials. He was a uh, a healer. Right, and so Navajo d- healer, peyote, uh, sweat lodge, but they didn't do peyote. When no, they it was did a, a, straight some... up prayers, a couple hours in a tent, very hot with rocks, and all kinds of crazy stuff happening. What happened? How did they describe? So what happened is Alan arrived and then went into the sweat lodge, into the ceremony with the shaman and Bill uh, and a couple of friends, assistants. And they went through the ceremony, and there was a lot of praying, a lot of chanting. He he used a a whistle. He swallowed. There's some, now there's some debate among the guys. And Alan being the eternally skeptic, and the younger guys saying, "Did you see the coals flying around the tent?" You know, and Alan's like, "Well, are you sure you saw that?" And did you see where the shaman the shaman swallowed the glowing coals? And and the Alan going. Are you sure you saw that? I didn't see that. So this is sort of very interesting. But what happened was after the ceremony, Alan immediately ran upstairs and wrote it all down. So the next day, the, the book is organized by days. It's, it's a daily routine. So they're at dinner saying, you know, oh, that was amazing what happened last night. Or at breakfast saying, that was amazing what happened last night. Alan said, well, let me go get my notes. And then Alan comes down and reads his notes in great detail about the, yeah, the photographic memory, about everything that happened during the ceremony, who was there, what was involved, you know, what happened, what the shaman said, you know. Uh, it's very beautiful. And the the uh, ceremony was uh, arranged by uh, anthropologist William Lyon, who had for many years worked with black elk. So very knowledgeable. And as William pointed out, uh, risked losing the coveted tenure in order to spend 14 years with this Native American elder. 14 but, years with black elk? Yeah. <clears throat> uh-huh. So he knew something. So he knew something. And he did the books. And so he had hooked up with Melvin and it was helping Melvin... He was connecting the shaman to people who needed healing ceremonies. So 
they hooked him up to uh, to do a ceremony for William. Super interesting from an anthropological standpoint, also because the, there's the whole there's a whole long section about how much to pay the shaman. <laughs> Where Bill Lyon, the anthropologist, says, "Well, here's what I do. This is what you do, and how to do it, and how to talk about it, and how to approach it, and what he won't say, but what he thinks, and all of the you know, how to deal with it, so that he feels respected." <laughs> But don't overpay him. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> well, he, William's like, I give these guys 2,000 bucks. Uh -huh. I pay them like a doctor. Right. That's what they are. Mm -hmm. If they work for me for a day, I give them 1,000 bucks a day. Like a doctor. Yeah. And he says a part of the thing is this self-esteem. For these guys to practice in a culture where, they, where their self-esteem is under attack, it's difficult. Yep. They need to be respected and paid for their work. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, he was here, he dug the pit, he brought in the rocks, he built the tent, you know, he goes through a whole list of what the guy did and says, so you should pay him, but you should pay him whatever you want, William, you know? And then they talk about how to pay the shaman. And then he, uh, he comes, Melvin comes to check, make sure everybody's okay. And uh, says some interesting things about getting rid of the skulls in the house. The burrows had a few. Yeah, you don't keep skulls in your house. Why not? Uh, that's a place where spirits can come in. Yeah, get rid of the skulls, you need to bury them. Mm -hmm. It's good to know. Healing advice yes. from the shaman. That's good. And then the final scene in the book, after all kinds of crazy other stuff happens, is, is uh, well, the shaman's coming back on Wednesday to bless the house. <laughs> after they go through the whole Christian exorcism rap for hours and hours, because Bill, uh, William had been reading uh, Malachi Martin's book on exorcism. Malachi Martin was a Jesuit expert on exorcism who wrote a book about ex about six American exorcisms. And so William was very interested in that. So they talk about the, the shamans, the shamanic ceremony that they had experienced, but also talk about the Christian angle. And Bill says great things like, uh, well, if the psychiatrist, you know, if there's a psychiatrist, always fuck everything up because they think it's some kind of goddamn complex. You know, he believed it was a demon. He thought the Christians had it right. He thought mm -hmm. the Catholics had it right. That's what it is. Yeah. It's a demon. So the Bill was a believer. Yeah, but, way. and then James says, well, you know, you want to convert to Catholicism. So this is one point, they're talking, they're giving an, uh, an account of they make friends with this priest who's a very literate guy, you know, very sort of interesting guy who somehow becomes a friend of William, a visitor. And William was ill at the time. And so the priest says, well, I can't anoint you. I have to baptize you. And James says, well, Bill, here's your chance. <laughs> <laughs> the baptism of William Burroughs. That is an extraordinary a, concept. No, no, I don't want to do that. You know? Nah, I can't so, imagine. He couldn't get anointed. But he studied the... He but studied, that's all in the book. It's all there. That's beautiful. He studied the literature, and, and he, he also, they also talk about the Castaneda books because he was studying that at the time also. Mm -hmm. It's his 90s, and yeah. William's doing all this reading, mm -hmm. reading about Tangier. I right. mean, this, you know. So for people who don't know much about William Burroughs, yeah. as a background, yeah. for Jose, yeah. William Burroughs is the author of The Naked Lunch. Yeah. And a number of other critical books right. from the 50s, 60s, 70s moment that drew back the curtain that was covering the nasty, seamy underside of Western values, Western life, to see what is really underneath the surface. Yep. And that he equated with the demon. If you ask William what the ugly spirit is, which happens in the book, Yes, it's the demon in the classic Christian sense of a demonic entity which has occupied this, the person, but it is also the Rockefellers, the Hearsts, the robber barons, the whole underside of money and control and PR 
And his personal connection to that particular aspect of the demon was his uncle, Ivy Lee, who was an, a pioneer in public relations who worked for the Rockefellers. So the whole kind of false advertising of capitalism is part of the demon too. Right. But he experienced it not only in this abstract political way, but also in a very personal way. That made him kill his wife. That made him kill his wife in a accident. In an accident, which is a part of the, That's a big part of the story. Yeah. And it also drove him to become a heroin addict. And a writer. And a writer. And he was, in many ways, from the perspective of somebody writing about addiction, the experience of addiction, shaping the whole way that people talked about addictions, the difficulty of what it is to be so caught up in the need for a substance, in the need for an experience, all forms of addiction, but his own personal addiction was really around heroin. And he wrote with tremendous insight and understanding about that problem. And he was working with that problem through much of his life. And, and fighting against control with a capital C, control. That was a lifelong uh, interest. And he's also a kind of prophet within the vehicle of the novel, a prophet of postmodernism and recognized as such by the French philosophers. Right. A hugely influential guy yeah. in the arts huge, and culture huge. world. But also, much more broadly, in shaping, reshaping what it is to be experiencing American culture today. So, like, all the punk, uh, punk rock guys, like, worshipped him. There's a big scene in the book where Alan, Alan and Bill talk about all of the bands that have been influenced by Burroughs. A long, long list, which Ginsburg compiled from talking to younger friends. Who are the bands that listen to Burroughs? And he goes on and on and on about the band. William Burroughs' photograph is on the cover of Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club Band. The Beatles put him in a studio to record stuff back in the late 60s. Um, and from there on, it was just like, it was endless, you know, with him. So in this book, you really capture the relationship between these two guys, these yeah. two pillars yeah. of uh, 60s counterculture. Yeah, They were both on a mission. They saw each other as very close allies, besides being very close personal friends. Yeah. But they saw themselves as being part of something that was larger than themselves, which also involved, obviously, in the early days, Jack Kerouac and Gregory Corso and the other writers of the Beat Generation yeah. who were reframing how we express our heart openly yeah. in order to shift our awareness of how society yeah. should be organized in order to give us full room to flower and feel love. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Burroughs was just as much a part of that, even when his stuff was very dark. Right. And even though the real Burroughsians will say, well, he wasn't really a beat, but started out with interests in common. That, that's how it all got going. When they met, they were all reading things that weren't being uh, assigned at Columbia University, you know. Right. And they were up at Columbia University. That's yeah. how they interconnected. Yeah. yeah. Uh, William had left. He'd run away from Vienna and come back to New York because he wanted to go to medical school. So he did Harvard. He was a Harvard man. And he graduated in English at Harvard and did a, j a good job of it. And then he uh, wound up, he flo floated around a bit, and then he la landed in New York and he took some courses at Columbia. And then he went to Vienna to, be, uh, to study medicine because not only was it the best place in the world to become a doctor, it was also the easiest in the sense that there was no entrance examination. You sign up for the courses, now you got to cut it. Huh, if you can that. if you can hack it, uh -huh. you can become a doctor. But if you fell out, you're gone. But if you fall out, you're gone. So Barros went for that. So he starts taking he starts studying medicine in Vienna. But the Nazis came in, 
So he ran away to back to the States, worked as an exterminator, took out jobs, was a bartender, was a detective. Because he came from a wealthy family, uh, he, gave, he received $250 a month from his parents until he was 50 years old. Well, $250 a month in 1943 could basically float your operation. You could have a small apartment and eat in restaurants and be okay. Always interested in the kind of the dark underside, ever since being a child, the sort of criminal or mystical underside, so detective thing, you know. During the war in New York City, he came into possession of a machine gun and some morphine, which he got from a worker uh, who was working on military base or, or in shipyard, and he wanted a little extra money, and so he was going to sell the machine gun and the morphine, and somebody connected him with Hunky. Herbert Hunky. Herbert Hunky, who was a junkie. And either the immediate guy or Hunky, I'm not clear on that, said, well, have you, have you ever tried this stuff? Oh, he had the morphine, but he, he was had the morphine, gonna, but he'd never tried it. He was it. just going to move it. It was going to move it. And he said, have you tried this stuff? And he got hooked on it and was basically a lifelong heroin addict. He got on methadone the last couple decades or so, but but uh, yeah, like that. Mm-hmm. So what was the kind of underside? <clears throat> And of course, the beats fused that, you know, fused that. Hunky became, Hunky was the guy who taught them, you know, Hunky lived on the street, basically. And Hunky was the guy who taught them things like when you go into a bar, first thing you figure out is where the back door is. He made his living stealing overcoats in coffee shops, this kind of thing. Or a rolling drunks on the subway, which Burroughs got involved in. You know, he was stealing, pickpocketing wallets from sleeping drunks on the subway. So he had that. He came from a wealthy family in uh, St. Louis sort of aristocracy, but also had this kind of dark uh, interests and also uh, resorted to dark things largely because of the heroin addict, event, uh, ha- uh, the heroin habit. But eventually. there was also the scene at the time. There was a sense that the mainstream American, happy-faced, you know, Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, Ozzie and Harriet, mainstream, yeah, was effectively full of shit yeah. and hypocritical. Yeah. And needed to be broken apart, needed yeah. to be subverted. Yeah. And, or they just couldn't deal with it. They couldn't deal with it personally, but it yeah. felt there was, they couldn't deal with it personally because it was so onerous. Yeah. And so not in touch with what they were really feeling. Right. And that's the beat generation. That's why they, Kerouac called them the beat generation, meaning beaten down, beat as in ripped off, also exhausted. And then only later he came to uh, attach it to beatific, meaning saintly. But the initial impulse was, he was talking to John Clellan Holmes, I think about 1948, and they said, what's, and John says, what's up with this generation? Like, people are different. There's a kind of a different spirit to this generation. And Jack said, we ain't nothing but a beat generation. Right. And the word beat, he picked up, I from thought, hunky. from hunky. Yeah, meaning, right. like a junkie would say, a beat, beat meaning tired, or beat meaning ripped off. Right. Like a beat bag of dope is a, is a talcum powder that looks like heroin, right? Yeah. That kind of underside of it, and the madness also, and and paying for it, like uh, Hunky getting Allen in trouble for receiving stolen property, so he gets sentenced to a year in a mental institution where he meets Carl Solomon, who had stowed away on a ship to go be with the Surrealists in France in the ni- in the 1930s. So there's all these strange connections. So going into the madhouse, going to San Francisco after the madhouse, trying to settle down with a nice girl, going to a shrink in San Francisco who, unlike the New York doctors, said, what would make you happy? And he said, find a boyfriend. And the shrink said, why, why don't you do that? 1950s, but New York doctors had said, this homosexuality thing is like, you can get over it, it's an illness. 
Right. <laughs> Get a nice girl. You're you're a nice boy. Well, this is part. You know? That was part of the issue of, <laughs> of that time, and that's why these guys were reacted so violently against what they saw as this oppressive mainstream yeah. awareness consciousness, yeah. which was you know essentially muffling all of the creative energies. Yeah. That they found themselves getting in touch with yeah. by stepping outside of the status quo, stepping outside of the mainstream. Yeah. But particularly Alan, he was the big activist. And he's the one, I mean, if it wasn't for Alan, Burroughs would have never gotten published. Right. He, he walked Kerouac up and down Madison Avenue trying to get him published. The manuscripts for years yeah. in a backpack. Yeah. Because yeah. Alan was the activist. My theory, my theory is that Alan lost the mother. He lost his mother and gained a bunch of friends. But the, the loss of the mother was so great and so protracted because of her illness that the friends couldn't, it couldn't just be a group of friends. They had to change the world. And they did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the madness uh -huh. that many of them were experiencing yeah. was captured in Alan's poem, Howl, yeah. which is a long poem yeah. about all of his friends yeah. being I saw the best minds of my, my generation. generation. Starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. Exactly. Yeah. And it goes on and on like this. And my father's experience of reading that poem for the first time, because he got, Alan sent it to him as a manuscript. Ah. 1957, I ah. guess. He had a particular experience of reading it with his friend Barney at the Cedar Tavern. They were ah. doing Grove Press at the time, just yeah. starting it out. Yeah. And dad read the manuscript to Barney across the table, mm -hmm. getting increasingly excited yeah. at this wild statement that was unlike anything else that was available at the time in yeah. terms of its radical honesty yeah. about what it felt like to be living in America at that moment in history. Yeah. And it was an indictment. Yes. A total indictment yes. of just how vicious the country's culture actually was yes. to people who are sensitive, yes. to people who can tell what it's like to go through suffering yes. and who are sensitive to hypocrisies, yes. deep hypocrisies. Yes. Uh, and lack of compassion. Yes. And so when how the pamphlet that City Lights published was banned. Yes. At that point when they were going to uh, going to court. Yes. My dad and his cohorts at Grove Press yeah. actually published Howell in the magazine that they had just begun. It was called Evergreen Review. Oh. Right. Yeah. But at the request of the lawyers, they were representing City Lights. Yeah they actually took the word cocksucker out of the right? evergreen of yeah. the evergreen they did dot 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 for all the words that were considered to be inflammatory that might have gotten them arrested because the court case was still in play yeah and the lawyers who were defending the book yeah. did not want them to do anything that might undermine their case in some way by yeah. creating another distraction yeah but that was the first national that was the first real publication of Howell. amazing that people could read amazing because right? All of the copies of Howell were impounded. And how many people got turned on by Evergreen magazine? May, Patty Smith, yeah. right? Young person in New Jersey finds this magazine. Like, this is, what is this? Right? Yeah. yeah, Evergreen was important. Yeah, that was, that, so yeah. that was, became essentially the communications platform yeah. for that whole movement yep. at that time for about 15 years. But the thing about Howell is, uh, which speaks to Ginsburg's whole poetics, is that 
he was approaching 30 years old. He was getting on. He was not getting anywhere. He couldn't get anybody to publish his poems. He was, you know, pushing 30, like, what am I going to do? So sat down to write to Jack. Howell was not initially intended for publication. Howell was initially intended as a letter to Jack saying, this is what I remember of our friends. And Jack wrote back to Alan and said, I've read your Howell. And that's how the poem got named. And then he read it, and then there was a poetry, but it was because of all the terrible things that happened. Like the guy who got, well, they were partying, and the guy was on the subway, and he was drunk, and he was talking about a cute girl that he saw in a bar, and he started screaming about how he was going to go back to the bar and find that girl and sticks his head out of the subway window and loses his head. So this is a guy who's 17, when he's 17, 18, his best friend murders a member of their of their crowd, David Cameron, Lucian Carr, who was the midwife, according to the New York Times, the midwife of the Beat Generation, who introduced everybody initially. So when Lucian and Alan were 17, Lucian killed David Cameron. Which, who was the guy who had a crush on him. Who was stalking him. Was stalking him. Essentially. Yeah, was and, stalking him. And, right. and confronted him in the park one night. Mm-hmm. And Lucian, we don't really know, but Lucian, you know, had, had, had enough and freaked out and stabbed him. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So there was a lot of darkness. There was a lot of darkness. So scene. Alan had all these memories of all this, his own his own uh, hospitalization, his visions, mm-hmm. uh, his his visions of William Blake and hearing the voice of God in Harlem and and fearing that he like his he was going to go the way his mother had gone, which was she was by that point in the mental institution. So the, is it madness? Is it poetry? Is it is it visitations of the spirit world? What is it? All of this was up for grabs. They're smoking weed. They're doing Benzedrine. They're listening to jazz. Benzedrine. What's Benzedrine? Benzedrine. For those who don't know. Benzedrine was amphetamine that you could get without a prescription. It was a sinus remedy. And you can actually, if you look online, you Google image it. It's amazing. It's a little inhaler. It says amphetamine on it. <laughs> ben, uh, Benzedrine was the brand name. Yeah. And what it was, was a, it was a piece of tissue paper folded up like an accordion, soaked in amphetamine. And what you were supposed to do was sniff it to clear your sinuses. But what everybody did was they t- broke it open and took the paper and dropped it in a cup of coffee. Really hardcore people chewed and swallowed the paper. But Kerouac took so much Benzedrine at one point and sat at the typewriter for so long. Because if, if you're on amphetamine, you can type for three days nonstop. He was, had to be hospitalized because of, the, because of the circulation in his legs from taking the Benzedrine and sitting up typing for you know, day, days on end. Everybody was hooked on this. There's a, whole, there's a whole book to be written. Al and I used to talk about this. There's a whole book to be written about the influence of Benny's or amphetamine on the whole art world and the science world. Norbert Wiener. 
you know, compu- computer guy, early computer guys, early computer scientists, guys on a deadline, scientists working, you know, you can get the bennies at the drugstore, you know, it'll keep you up for a couple of days, you know. So that was huge. Yeah, and that's how Kerouac wrote On the Road. Probably. In three weeks. Probably, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So the benzodrine, the drug. So Alan wrote to Jack saying this thing, and Jack said, this is great. And then there was a reading coming up at the Sixth Gallery. And the Sixth Gallery was um, an old garage that had been uh, six artists had rented it because they needed studio space and they were going to share it as studio space. So it became a gallery studio space co-op. And then there was going to be a poetry reading and it was going to be the six, six at the six, six poets at the reading at the, at the, uh, at the gallery. And Alan had a background in PR. He'd actually worked in advertising at one point. And so they said, uh, why don't you, you know, why don't you do the, the postcard? So Alan made a postcard, you know, the greatest thing that's ever happened, you know, poets, mm. poets, and people showed up. Because at that point, nobody did poetry readings. Poetry right. readings right. were start- totally out of fashion. It was a new thing. By yeah. the mid fifties. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea that you would get up and read your poems in a public place and that in fact, it would be a celebratory environment, yeah. which is how they did it. And it'd be fun. This led directly to spoken word. Yeah. Right. That that event that that yeah. that, op- that made poetry readings yeah. like a cool thing that then moved from the galleries into yeah. cafes that had started in San Francisco a little earlier, but the the, the that was the big blast for sure. Mm-hmm. The idea of reading in a bar, getting together in a bar, and reading your palms to each other that was uh, that was a San Francisco Renaissance. Uh, Blazer, um, gosh, I'm really being terrible. But the other guys who were part of that, yeah. Scene? Well, yeah, yeah. Jack Spicer. Spicer, Blazer, yeah. Yeah, Robert Duncan. Duncan, yeah. yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did an interview with Alan, God knows, late 80s, when I was working on another project that was about the influence of the 60s counterculture on the mainstream yeah. of America, and like what that history was, and yeah. we got into some details. Yeah. And he laid out for me what he called the three revolutions. Oh. Do you remember this? Uh-uh. He like worked it out into a pretty clear presentation, hmm. which is pretty neat. And basically what he's, he talked about was there was the revolution of the word, yeah. which had to do with the freeing of the language to be published in its honesty. Yep. The Howell trial was part of that. Yep. Then that was followed by the Lady Chatterley Lovers yep. trial, because yep. that book by D.H. Lawrence was banned. Yep. That was followed by... Tropic of Cancer, and that was the yep. big trial. Yep. Henry Miller's book, Tropic of Cancer, which was also banned in this country. Right. Which, because um, there were 50 court cases in every state ah. to make it legal. Ah. And my dad coordinated that. Ah. That was a Grove book. Those wow. later Chinese lover, Tropic of Cancer. And then finally, Naked Lunch was yep. the last big trial. Yep. In 1964 in Boston. Right. And that was the last, when they got that legal, that was, that was basically the end of literary censorship in America. But yep. before then, Nobody necessarily remembers this, but there were certain words you could not print in books yeah. or in a magazine. The word fuck could yeah. not be printed. You yeah. would go to jail, Yeah, right? Yeah, people did. <laughs> and people did. And so that's why Norman Mailer wrote a novel after the Second World War called The Naked and the Dead. Yeah. And instead of people saying fuck, they say fug, F-U-G. Yeah, which is where the band got their name from. The, the fugs, which were like the critical yeah. downtown Lower East Side 60s counterculture yeah. house band. Of whom I am the guitarist. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all and we're and all connected. <laughs> this is all connected. And they, you guys used to rehearse in the apartment we shared, which was kind of an incredibly awesome yeah, thing. That's right. That's yeah. right. But so there was the freeing of the word, mm-hmm. revolution of the word, mm-hmm. revolution 
around sex, mm -hmm. the sexual revolution, which is a critical piece of all of this, mm -hmm. that sense that you can open up yourself to express your desires as they need to be manifested. Mm -hmm. Part of that, of course, has to do with gay rights, but mm -hmm. also the full panoply of mm -hmm. sexual experience. Mm -hmm. which, also the anarchists and the women's movement, historically. Yeah, well, it came up through, yeah. there, there was that yeah. history, but yeah. then in the 60s, yep. there was a explosion around this, yep, yep. right? Um, and the pill certainly had something yep. to do with that too. And then the revolution of consciousness through psychedelics, Yep. which Ginsburg was at the center of again, Yep. because he teamed up with Tim Leary. And before that, he got the first doses from when it was military intelligence doing research. Of uh, CIA. Of yeah. LSD. Yeah. He didn't know he was taking CIA LSD, but he, it was. Yeah. 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 And he also, he and Burroughs were two of the first people from the West who did ayahuasca. That's right. And Burroughs, in, your, in the book, in Don't Hide the Madness, actually says that it was the drinking of ayahuasca in the 50s that led to him writing Naked Lunch. Yes. Alan says it, and Bill agrees. Yeah. He says, yes, I think that's true. Mm -hmm. It was opening up with the ayahuasca that gave, gave him that visionary fre frequency. Right. Which is really dark. The book is really dark. Whoa, yeah. Well, no, what happened was that Burroughs' visions reflected that dark, angry being. That's true. That and also, he, was he wasn't managed with. in the way that's managed these days. Uh, what do you mean? I'm not sure. I, I mean, Burroughs got ayahuasca from a guy. I don't think there was any songs involved or any ceremony or any context involved. Did I he just go, he that. went back to the hotel room and drank it? Is that what happened? Mm, maybe, no. or he did it at somebody's house who had it, but yeah. I, don't, I don't think- There was there, no ceremony. There's no talk about ceremony. As far as I know, I have not read those books, I must confess. Oh yeah, okay. So but I, I think Bill had, a, yeah, I think William time. had a bad experience on ayahuasca. He did have a yeah. bad experience on ayahuasca. Yeah. And of course, then Ginsburg says, oh, I got to try that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And his experience was not that much better. Yeah. As I recall. No, yeah. they were not hooking into the whole shamanic- which is context. something Leary had talked about. It's like, you got to have context. That's right. Leary had that intuition or that knowledge, maybe from the Mexicans, maybe from the mushroom people, mm -hmm. that if you're going to do this, you got to do it in an appropriate setting. That's right. Set yeah. and setting yeah, yeah. is key, which they did not understand they back just took it. in yeah. the early days. Ginsburg's role in those three revolutions yeah. was central, yes. as was the whole beat movement, that there was this shifting in awareness around you know, how to express yourself freely, that you can actually be honest and not go to jail. Yeah. <clears throat> that you can then uh, express yourself sexually. That's now developed so much further, but it really has to do with, you know, choosing your own identity and yeah. how you want to be perceived and, yeah. you know, what is what is uh, embraced by yeah. the mainstream of the culture in terms yeah. of your own expression. Yeah. And then the consciousness piece, which on the one hand, Psychedelics was a huge part of that, but they also introduced Buddhism to America in yes. a popular way. In the pop culture, for in sure. In the pop yeah. culture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because Kerouac was writing about Buddhism in, yeah. in On the Road and in yeah. Dharma Bums. Yeah. And that was really the first popular embrace of Buddhist yeah. meditation. Yep. Outside of the Asian community, I'd say that's true. Yeah. Yep. The pop culture, yeah. In the, pop, in the mainstream yeah. pop culture. Yeah, yeah. And so they weave these things together into a movement yeah. That frankly is what's resonating to this day in many ways. Yes. And has led to, well, actually two things. One is the massive split between red and blue America. Yeah. Bill Clinton has even said that basically whether you're a Republican or a Democrat has to do with how you feel about the 60s. Uh, 
That's true. If you thought the 60s were a good, basically more good than bad, you're probably a Democrat. Yes. If you thought the 60s are more bad than good, you're probably a Republican. Yeah. Well, Newt Gingrich and all those people got inspired by the Chicago uh, Convention, uh, Democratic Chicago Convention riot of 1968. That sort of gelled what became the new right and the Reaganites. Yeah. The outrage of these young Southern uh, Republican conservative college boys over what the hippies were doing in the streets, getting beat up by the police. You know. Right. Yep. No, there was a reaction against that. Yep. Right. So the movement continues to resonate. Yes. And grow and develop. Yeah. So the, this, you were in college. Uh-huh. You were playing guitar. Yeah. And he showed up in Jersey. Yeah. Where he needed an accompanist. Yeah. Do you remember what it was like when you first connected with him? Yeah. Well, I had been reading, I had been dropping acid. <laughs> And sort of disillusioned with the academic program that I was on. Uh, I had set out to be a school teacher and realized I didn't want to be a school teacher. And I was taking acid with my roommate doing yoga and going to Ram Dass lectures. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was he there? Ram Dass in around. person? He yeah. was around, yeah. Philly. I used to go into Philly to see him when he was uh, on the circuit. Yeah. I happened to be reading Leary, and then Ginsburg showed up. And the professor who organized the reading series where the poets would come into the college and the English department would put on a, a thing where the, the person gives a little workshop and then does, a, does a, a, a performance. So I would go to those. And a professor who organized that was an acquaintance of mine. I had never studied with him, but my girlfriend was an English major and he, had a, he was fond of her. <laughs> and so he was my friend. <laughs> and... Uh, Ginsburg said to the professor, uh, you know, is anybody, any some, a kid around who can play the guitar? And he came to me, the professor said, gave me his car keys and said, go get your guitar. So I met Alan, uh, I saw him speak first, and I asked a question about Leary because nobody, you know, college kids these days, 1973, uh, 76, 76, you know, they didn't have much to say. You know, who is this guy from another planet, right? But and, you knew who he was. But I knew who he was. How did you, because you were reading this stuff and you kind because of- Because I'd read Kerouac, Dharma Bums, and because I had read part of Howl, because my father used to bring me books. My father brought me a book, an anthology of poetry that had a piece of Howl in it. And so I knew that. And then I knew who Alan was because of Leary and starting to follow all that and also reading Kerouac and being in that whole mindset, sort of buying that whole mind, becoming, becoming a hippie. Coming into self, uh, coming into self as an American adult, as a hippie, which was the most attractive, almost imperative social gear of the moment. You would grow your hair, take your shoes off, wear prayer beads, and you know your teachers didn't like it. You know that kind of thing. I was doing that, so a uh, professor said, "Go get your guitar." So then I'm suddenly there on stage with him, and he had a harmonium which he'd brought back from India, which is a little keyboard instrument, and I could see the chords he was playing on the keyboard, and that al allowed me to play the guitar. And then he sang, and I started to sing with him, and he was singing William Blake's "Songs of Innocence and Experience," which I had known uh, from childhood to some extent. The this. You knew them as poems, you knew them as songs? I knew there was poems, and uh -huh. he was singing them, and he had refrains. And so I started joining him on the refrains, and I started harmonizing his singing. And he got very excited because he'd been picking up guitar players, but he never had one that sang harmony with him before. I don't think he'd ever heard his voice harmonized, and it kind of blew his mind. So after the show, he was like, don't leave, you know? After the show, I sort of rode back. He was going out the next day, so we drove back to his hotel. I went along for a ride, gave me his phone number, said, call me. So two weeks later- well, so, so What was your impression of him as a person? Smart, genius, really, and uh, uh, energetic, 
sounded like, uh, talked like I did. I, I think I wrote it somewhere. I said, you know, he's older than my dad, but he talked like I did. Because he invented that way of talking. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which was a synthesis of Harlem hip talk and white boy college gossip. Right. Which those guys invented or, or brought forth. And which I inherited as a hippie, not realizing that it had been invented, invented by these guys. <laughs> right. Right. So, uh, but very much impressed. Conscious of him as a gay man. At one point he helped. He says, call me. Well, he says, call, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly, I mean, that's in the back of my mind. And like he, he held my hand in the car. Because what happened was we're in the car going back to the hotel. We were just dropping him off. On the car back to the hotel, we, the kids were passing a joint around, and I got paranoid, panicky. And he, I said, I'm not feeling good from the weed. And he held my hand. So at that moment, it was sort of set the moment where it was like, that was weird as a straight boy, 21 years old, but also quite reassuring because he was strong, <laughs> like solid. It was like, a, you know, he was a solid guy. Yeah. And so that was kind of funny. So then he said, I'm making a record at Columbia Records with John Hammond in a couple of weeks and you should come to the rehearsal. So I went to the rehearsal in the city and played a little bit, sang with the guys in the band, which was a couple of guys from the Dylan Rolling Thunder Band and some other uh, other local guys, uh, New York musicians, which was a great band. And uh, so next thing you know, I'm in a recording studio. The first time I was ever in a recording studio in my life was with John Hammond. Yeah, who's a, the Tell legendary me, yeah, like, record producer. And and Arthur Russell, who's on the show, always t says to me, Bob Dylan's going to come. And I'm like, if Bob Dylan walks in here, I'm going to drop dead. <laughs> 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 it was enough already. Uh -huh. And then the, the, one, the other thing was, uh, which might as well, at the end of the session, he said, why don't you come down to my place? And I'd never been to his place. And I was like, ah, the old gay guy wants me to come home with him. I don't know. Nah, I'll see you later. On his way home, he runs into John and Yoko, winds up spending the whole night at the Dakota with John and Yoko. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, my luck is good, but not that good. Lost opportunity. Lost opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And just to say, the Beatles named themselves after the Beat generation. John Lennon had name dropped Allen Ginsberg in Give Peace a Chance. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was a very deep connection there for those who, like, I think this brings us back to maybe where we started. The way that the the beats and the the counterculture consciousness went out was essentially megaphoned to the world yeah. through Bob Dylan and yeah. the Beatles yeah. creating pop music and pop culture around the same Impulses, Awareness, same, impulses. The same impulses. Yeah, yeah. Barry Miles turned uh, Lennon and McCartney onto the beats, I think. Uh, a later biographer of Burroughs. He just wrote the most recent bi biography of Burroughs. Mm -hmm. And Barry Miles is an interesting connection because he's the guy who took uh, McCartney to see, he took them to see Luciano Berrio perform. So 20th century tape loop outside avant music that the Beatles suddenly start doing. That's Miles. Yeah. Or that's Miles connecting them with that music. These are these guys, they, run, they, they arrive in London, and here's the sophisticated, literate, journalist, artist guy who says, you should listen to this music. Right. And next thing you know, they're all experimenting with tape loops, and you get Revolution Number 9. Or that's Yoko also later, but... Mm -hmm. but, but No, but even I, in the... I think it, of Miles earlier is, than that, they were... <laughs> Miles was, played a huge role in introducing those guys, particularly McCartney, to the yes. radical culture of that moment. Yes, um, and that's a rabbit hole. We don't have to no, we dive don't down, to but it's, it's, well, but thank him. you, Barry Miles. God bless him. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
So you got to know Ginsburg. Yeah. You actually ended up traveling with him closely 20 years. 20 years. Had the keys to the apartment. Yeah. For you, access to that uh, understanding, like how it operated as a engine of cultural innovation. Yeah. It was a unique moment in American history where these extraordinary creative minds were all connecting to each other socially around the shared vision of consciousness change. And they used their art to drive that. They saw art as the way to change the culture by changing both your own way of perceiving as well as challenging the structures of the society. Yep that were considered to be a kind of imposition on the self that kept you from being fully connected to what you're capable of through love and uh, awareness of the beauty of the planet. And I was pretty deep in that scene as well. I spent a lot of time there when I was a kid. And I was like, I was really young in that world. Yeah. Um, Well, I met your father before I met you. Right. (laughs) Um, Because my dad was their publisher, one of their publishers. Yeah. They were often nice to me because of my dad, is how I felt. And we were friends, and they liked we you. We were friends, yeah, and okay. they liked you. But um, I learned a hell of a lot. Yeah. That was really where I got my, that's where I got my real education. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think you learned? What was the most important thing you learned from those guys? To meditate. Yeah? <laughs> that's what comes to mind. <laughs> uh, to be a poet. Uh-huh. To speak, poet. Like Gregory Corso said, are you a poet? Well, I don't know. Well, you're either a poet or you're not. Are you a poet? I'm a poet. So tell me a poem. Well, you're a poet. You can't tell me a poem. Listen to this. A star is as far as the eye can see and as near as my eye is to me. So Gregory, you push on that. If if you're a poet, say so. Ginsburg says you're a poet, right? You're a poet. Read your poem. I would get on stage with him and he'd say, you got to read your poem now. And I'd be like, eh. he'd say, speak, poet. He'd yell at me, you know, speak. Don't, don't doubt it. Put it out there. You have to write your own history. You have to present your work. You have to have something you can hold in your hand and say, I made this. This is what I do. You got to claim it. You got to claim it. Yeah. You are living art history. Yeah. Let's go. Right. Because yeah. that mm-hmm. actually engages you in the active yeah. work yeah. of shifting yeah. the awareness of everybody. Yeah. What Amiri Baraka calls culture work. He talks of poets as culture workers. You're a culture worker. And you've been doing culture work f- all your life. Yeah, don't pay very much. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's not the point. Yeah, right. Nice when it does. Yeah, it's nice. It can happen. Yeah, yeah. Dylan did okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. I mean, there's some people, it can happen. Yeah. Uh, but it's not the objective. It's not the point. Right. Right. So I learned to meditate. I also I learned a lot of music because I was sort of, um, so for example, we'd be on an air and he'd say, uh, or we arrive in Amsterdam and the promoter in Amsterdam says, what do you want? You can have anything you want. This is Amsterdam. And Alan says, I want a string quartet. <laughs> so Ben Possett says, I can get you a string quartet. <laughs> Cool. So now I got to write a string quartet. <laughs> I never would have done that on my own volition. I'm too not disciplined enough. So now I'm on a deadline. I have to write a string quartet and there's no piano. 
So I learned so much. He made me such, he made me a musician in that sense. I had the training and I had the practice on my instrument, but you know, we got to write an orchestra. You know, we have an orchestra. Let's go. You know, we're going to Dallas. We're going to do an orchestral setting of some William Blake. Let's go. And the idea that I was like, I can't do it. It was not, didn't enter in the equation. Get it, you know, figure it out. You're the musician, you know. So I learned so much. I learned to orchestrate. I took orchestration classes as an undergraduate, but I learned on, you know, the Kansas City Symphony and, you know, the Mondrian Quartet in Amsterdam. And, you know, uh, you know, it was like really amazing. Like crazy. Like serious people. Serious, yeah. Yeah. Um, and as a musician, you went on to collaborate with the Fugs, as yeah. you mentioned before. Yeah. Um, became the musical director. Well, right? Alan I mean, said that. Alan said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did it mean to be the musical director of the Fugs? Who were the Fugs? So the Fugs were a group of poets who got together in 19, the winter of 1963-64 in the East Village. It was Thule Kufferberg who uh, was a native of Brooklyn or native New Yorker. He grew up speaking Yiddish, was an anarchist uh, politically, graduate Brooklyn College, genius, lyricist, a very funny guy, classic actually. And uh, I met him on the street where he was selling his pamphlet, poetry pamphlets. Uh, Alan introduced me. Mm -hmm. And then a few years later, I met Sanders. I went to... Uh, Ed Sanders. Yeah. Oh, anyway, so who were the fucks? So 63, 64, Ed Sanders and Thule Kufferberg are having a beer at Stanley's Bar on Avenue A, which is where everybody went. And the Beatles come on the jukebox. And it's like, I want to hold your hand. And everybody starts dancing. And it was like, hey, those guys are on to something. <laughs> We're poets. We'll have great lyrics. We can do this. And of course, they couldn't do that. And But they invented punk rock. Right. Or in a sense, invented the idea that you could have a great idea, not necessarily very good at playing music, and just do it anyway, which is what they did. The first concerts, the drummer played on an uh, orange crate, you know, apple, apple boxes, you know. So uh, the Fugs got together and they wound up getting a record deal because it was 60s and there was a lot of, the business was looking for new acts. Got picked up by ESP Records, which was actually a modern jazz label. Then later, uh, Warner Brothers uh, had told me that he had to audition for Frank Sinatra. If you wanted to be on Warner Brothers Records in the 60s, you had to meet Frank. So Ed had to go meet Frank Sinatra, the schmooze. That must have been amazing. And, and the, uh, Frank said to Ed at the end of the meeting, you're a good kid. You know, okay, you're a good kid. And so they got their <laughs> Warner Brothers contract. <laughs> but the, the, the band and broke you up. See, so Ed is the proto-hippie yeah. of that time. Or, and yeah, He already was. He had a bookstore. Yeah, right? He had a bookstore. He had yeah. a bookstore called the uh, Peace, Eye. Peace Eye Books, which was like the main poetry radical left yeah. bookstore in the East Village yeah. at the center of the 60s counterculture as it was emerging. Out of a, like a five block area, you know. That, right. right. It was like, yeah, exactly. It was like a virus growing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he had been arrested for uh, protesting a nuclear submarine, swimming out into the Thames River in Connecticut to board a nuclear submarine. Because right. he was a real athletic guy. He was a basketball player and a skater and a good swimmer. And he was able, as a young man, to swim out and board, try to board a submarine and got arrested. Like Thoreau, not paying taxes. Right. <laughs> this old American rebel tradition. Mm -hmm. Right. Of course, which the transcendentalists were obviously behind this in some way also. 
Well, you 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 take it back to Emerson, yeah. totally. To yeah, Emerson yeah, yeah. And and, uh, and Thoreau. Yeah, eighteen thirties, eighteen forties, eighteen fifties. And then you take it to William to uh, Walt Whitman. Whitman, exactly. In the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. Yep. And then it just keeps growing, and then you yeah. take it to the radical scene in the Greenwich Village in the nineteen yeah. teens. Yeah. And the Bohemian eruption yeah. of that time, and it went. Yeah. There's a whole secret history. Yeah. Alan slept with a guy who slept with a guy who slept with a guy who slept with Whitman. Genius. <laughs> so that settles the question <laughs> of Whitman's of Whitman's proclivities. Yeah. So the Fugs were the house band, basically, for the '60s counterculture in the mid to late '60s. In the village, in the village, on in in New York, sort of the equivalent of the Grateful Dead in a way. At that time, prototype on the what they were the prototype for the Grateful. Have the Dead. mothers too, yeah, and mothers of invention and Frank the Velvets, and the Velvet Underground. Who followed them by about six months. Yeah, but it took a little longer to really get off, like, to make it. Yeah, yeah. But because of Andy Warhol, yeah. the Velvets got a got a really good, we got yeah. a better record deal. <laughs> yeah. So John Rockwell, the critic, says in the Grove Encyclopedia of Popular Music that the Fugs were basically the initiators of what became punk rock. Yeah, a lot of historians of punk rock yeah. trace it back to the Fugs. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the 60s, they broke up. And then they got back together because Ed, I started working with Ed because he was thinking about getting back into music and he'd seen me with Ginsburg. And so I used to go up to Woodstock and hang out with him and work on tunes with him, which was really lovely with a family, with, you know, young Deirdre growing up and playing badminton and Miriam and this little house in the woods. It's really a beautiful scene. And so we got to be friends doing that. And then he called up at one point. He said, Ronnie Reagan's in the White House. It's time to get the band back together. <laughs> <laughs> So 84 at the bottom line. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And the Mud Club before that, but that was different. Just to step back for a second, for anybody who doesn't know, Ed was one of the key figures in the creation of the Yippies. Yes. Which was kind of the most radical expression of street 60s counterculture politics. politics. Yes. Starting in 68. Changed the whole dynamic of the anti-Vietnam War movement yeah. and the civil rights movement yeah. in many ways. Yeah. I was recently corresponding with a journalist from the San Francisco Review of Books who wanted to know why the beats are relevant today. And my idea initially was America is lonesome for her heroes. Ginsburg in uh, Howell had said, Denver is lonesome for her heroes. I think America is lonesome for her heroes because that idea of the greatness or the idea that one could be great has kind of gone out. The Beatles were great in the 60s. The Beats were great in the sense of cutting across cultural lines. The Beatles were great in the sense of cutting across cultural lines. But greatness in that sense has gone extinct, and we're lonesome for it. Yeah. The, you know, you had the whole anti-hero, rebel hero thing coming into the popular culture three years before Al. That's another crazy thing. So Marlon Brando, The Wild One Motorcycle Gang movie, 1953, three years before the publication of Hal, Right. And then 1955, James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause, 1955, the year before the publication of Hal. So when the critics got hold of On the Road, and then On the Road coming out the same year as the trial. So the, the book coming out 56, uh, Hal coming out 56, 57, the trial 57, Viking probably, probably taking advantage of the trial publicity around Hal to release On the Road, which was then in preparation at the publishers. So... You had On the Road and Help hit the press, hit the mainstream press at the same time when in the Hollywood culture, there's now a whole set of anti-heroes 
rebel motorcycle gang disillusioned adolescents not listening to their parents, guys. And so when the you had critics coming out and talking about switchblades, if you Google Kerouac and switchblades, you won't believe how many hits come up. And he never talked about switchblades. It was the critics. These guys are juvenile delinquents, you know, uh, you know, serious literary critics in mainstream publications coming out and saying these guys are juvenile delinquents with, uh, you know, uh, waving switchblades around, you know. Um, Life magazine came out with a feature on the beats, November 59, I think, comparing them to insects, saying they were, uh, and they actually staged a scene for the photo, two-page photo of, a, of a, a beatnik chick who was a model in an apartment full of garbage with a baby sleeping on the floor among the empty beer cans. And this was supposed to be the beat culture. And that they are fruit flies sucking off the juices of America. The, the, the line was, America, is the war is over. We have peace and prosperity after the Depression. The economy's doing great. Everybody should get in line and just do the job. There's lots of jobs going, industries building. We're building up the suburbs. What's the matter with these guys? They must be cockroaches and the you know or monsters, petty criminals and cockroaches was the angle. And in fact, Alan told me, and I've been trying to check this out and I couldn't find it. He said, if you look at the Life magazine story on the beats, the photograph of Gregory Corso is opposite a advertisement for Raid cockroach spray. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this was the mainstream right. take. That's it. Yep. At the same time, there was some serious, the first review of On the Road in the New York Times was, said, said this is important literary work. Yeah. But then there was a kind of massive come down on the part of the larger popular culture like Life Magazine saying these guys are dangerous. And it was dangerous. Yeah. To the mainstream. Yeah. Uh, and it did change things. Yeah. It did shift things. Yeah. So what had been the cultural perspective of what was a very small group of people. Yeah. Through the 60s, boomed into a mass movement. Yeah. And in the decades since the 60s, has infiltrated the mainstream. Yeah. Where many of the attitudes and ideas that were at the center of that counterculture. Yeah. Are now, frankly, embraced by every blue state. People who've never heard of Jack Kerouac. And people who certainly never don't know yeah. the history, don't yeah. understand how this happened. Yeah, right? yeah. But at the same time, there's a mystical undercurrent to a much higher level of transformation beyond what it is to essentially see your identity vis-a-vis -vis the mainstream so you can express yourself freely. But really, how do we shift the culture so that we don't destroy the environment and so that we can connect to what it is that people are fully capable of experiencing in the full embrace of love. Mm -hmm. I'd say that energetic path is now present in what we would think of as the consciousness movement, which is an ill-defined thing, but feels very strong and very real when you're connecting into it. It's coming yep. out of Burning Man. It's coming, you have 37 million people in America doing yoga right now. Yeah. Not all of them are having Kundalini awakenings, but enough. Yeah. So that there's something going on. 9.9% of American workers now meditate, which is an extraordinary number. Not, not all of them are seeing white light when they meditate, mm -hmm. but for a bunch of them, something is happening. Mm -hmm. 30 million people have done psychedelics, mm -hmm. according to the numbers I saw mm -hmm. in the United States. And this widespread connection to source in a way that is outside of the conventional religious slash socially sanctioned forms mm -hmm. is giving birth to something. Mm -hmm. So I guess about a decade ago, we started Evolver, 
and Reality Sandwich. Mm -hmm. Began to publish Reality Sandwich as a magazine mm -hmm. online dedicated really to this culture, to this scene, so it would have a place to express itself. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I did when we got it going was to call you uh -huh. when you first came, moved back to New York from working uh, at, at Naropa, at Naropa for yeah. many years, running yeah. the writing program there, yeah. and said, uh, you want to help edit this thing? Yeah. I thought of it as deliberately creating a, a strong alchemical connection from the beat legacy to what's happening today. Yeah. And having your hand in it yeah. was a direct energetic input yeah. of that legacy, yeah. was that understanding. Yeah. And just about every article that we posted on the site somehow or another went through your hands. Yeah, for a while, yeah. For a long time. Yeah. For many years, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How do you see the scene that's emerging today connecting to that history, to that legacy? What are the similarities? Well, one thing that comes to mind, uh, just as a factoid, uh, the sales of On the Road were steady at about 25000 a year up until 1991, and then they quadrupled. And now it's holding steady around 120,000 copies a year. So something happened in the 90s that, you know, Kerouac suddenly got huge. So that's one sort of factoid. Well, these people opened the doors, made certain things visible, made it okay to be uh, different, made it okay to be, uh, as you said, uh, revolutionary in terms of freedom of expression, freedom of sexuality, and uh, freedom of consciousness. Yeah. It has a... It, uh, one thing that comes up a lot that needs to be mentioned with regard to these guys is it was very much a boys club. And, you know, there's all kinds of literature now about the women in On the Road as wives and girlfriends who can be stay home and take care of the kids while the guys go out and have their spiritual adventures. And I can recall uh, when I first started studying critical theory as a graduate student with Nancy Armstrong at Brown University, she said, uh, I spent the 60s washing dishes for rooms full of stoned revolutionary men. Right. So the whole women's thing, it, but that's coming back too because there were lots of women involved in this. And in fact, the birth of it was very much tied up with Joan Vollmer and Edie Parker whose apartment was the scene where this thing got cooking mm -hmm. and who were great intellects of their time, particularly Joan, who wound up marrying William. Jo Joan thought, she, uh, William Burroughs thought Joan Vollmer had the best mind of the whole crew. Talk about best minds, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of invisible feminist history or the, the history of the women involved in that, which is also coming out now. Yeah, so we have to give the guys, we have to say that about these guys. But the movement as a whole really did you know, continue and have a huge impact. And that that literature now, go read the ladies, go read the women that came through that period. Read Diane Prima, read read Ann Waldman, later a uh, New York school uh, poet, you know. Read uh, Janine Pommy Vega, who, who was associated with the Beats. Um, all of these people, you know, uh, Caroline Cassidy, um, all of these women, read the women too. Yeah, but that, that thing did have a huge impact. I think they opened the doors. They opened the door because the wars had just destroyed everything. I mean, what Burroughs said was uh, the bombing of Hiroshima killed democracy. Nobody asked me if we wanted to bomb, if I wanted to bomb Japan. So along with the idea of the beat generation being beaten down and ripped off was the idea that it's all gone techno out of control. 
There's no longer any, it, you know, the personality's gone out of it. And it was a nostalgic America trip. This American, this American experiment that everybody talks about, particularly conservatives, was a romantic experiment. It was a product of the beginning of the romantic era. The idea of the heroic individual, the self-made individual. So by 1959, with a Life magazine article about the Beats, the heroic individual, the freedom-loving individual has been reduced to a cockroach. That paradox, you know, Marx talks about the paradoxes emerging in the culture and then something shifts. Not so much that everybody takes up guns and you have a revolution. What happens is the contradictions within the culture jam the works up so bad that you move to another level. It's Hegelian, right? It's Marx's take on, on Hegel, which was the big breakthrough in social philosophy, right? That things jam up, the contradictions become apparent. They jam up the works, everything moves, moves to another level. So that's the moment, that's the beat moment. Post Hiroshima, post-World War II, the nation state, as Julia Kristeva uh, uh, noted, is a dream of the 19th century. That died in World War I. The whole idea that you can have an empire and a colonial empire and all that, that all exploded in 1914. It exploded again, finally, in uh, 1945 with the atom bomb, but also with the liberation movements, the liberation of Africa to a great extent. Uh, the, the, uh, we were just talking about Latin America, Costa Rica, 1940s, right? The, all, the, all the revolutions or the, uh, the liberation from the colonial, political colonial military culture, um, all coming at that time. So these guys came at a turning point, a major nexus in history. And we're at another major nexus in history now yeah. with President Turnip. Well, it feels like the work that began then to essentially blow up the existing structure, the, the, the old order, is now pretty much coming to its conclusion that yeah. the system is dissolving. That yeah. old, the, the fantasy yeah. of what it was to live in essentially, you know, public relations, happy America yeah. is over. And the mask has been lifted. Yep. And we can see what's really going on under the surface. Yep. And many, many people are revolted by it. Yep. And understand the need for change. But the question is, how is that change going to come? Yep. And my sense, and I think the premise of a lot of the, the consciousness movement, per se, is that the real change doesn't come until you do your own work. And when you do your own work and liberate yourself, with an awareness of your political responsibility, yeah. but still understand that you got to go into your own shadow stuff and yep. go through that. Yep. Without doing that, the real answer isn't going to come. Right. So the real work is still ahead of us yep. in many ways. Ongoing, yep. For, it's ongoing. Yep. And the power of the art and the writing that came out of the, that beat period is that they were so deliberate about crafting stuff yep. that would last. Yeah that was grounded in the, the classical understanding of how it is you articulate your awareness, your observations yeah. in a form that is not just a kind of sloppy expression, yeah. but that is actually chiseled with a rigor so that it continues to resonate yeah. and maintain its freshness yeah. so that it can continue to do its work on you. Yeah. So for Ginsburg, who obsessed on poetic form yeah. and the history of poetic form, yeah. knowing it when you make your art, when yeah. you make your expression. Yeah. Right? He spent much of the last years of his life helping to define a canon of that work. 
right. make sure that it survives. His whole thing, I remember this so clearly, we talked about it so much, it has to survive so that it's in the poetry anthologies that are taught in schools and in universities yeah. so that future generations can touch it. Sometimes it may be hard to fully grasp just how generative it can be, but if you can come at it with the proper eyes to really understand what the energy was behind that text, it's crafted in a way that it can still blow your mind open. So going back to Naked Lunch, going back to Howell, to Kaddish, those key poems by Ginsburg and Supermarket in California and yep. America and those yep. other ones that are kind of personal faves. Yeah. Going back to On the Road and yep. Dr. Sachs and yep. other Kerouac books and Best of Gregory Corso, all of that stuff. And there's a bunch of those guys that are really remarkable in their craft. It's still a key to personal to a, to a level of liberation and understanding your own your own indebtedness to history yes. and that you're a part of something part of a movement that is much bigger than you and it's great to know who your progenitors were yeah america ain't dead yet there's a there's a civil war going on between the republican party and the united states of america and the united states of america is going to win yep i buy that <laughs> Stephen, thanks so much for Buy being the book. here. Look at the book. Don't, Get, don't, don't hide, hide the, the madness. madness. Don't hide the madness. Stephen Taylor, editor. It's published by Three Rooms Press in New York. William S. Burroughs in conversation with Allen Ginsberg. It's a wormhole in, uh, in uh, William Burroughs' Kansas dining room. Yes, tell your story. The Beats saw that social and personal change is prompted by cultural transformation, and art can be the tool to catalyze this shift in consciousness. Art allows you to share your secret heart perceptions with others and gives you permission to express behaviors that are in alignment with your deepest self, or as some would put it, your higher self. Art introduces people to new ways of thinking, perceiving, and feeling. That same kind of shift can happen also through practices like meditation, yoga, the use of psychedelics, and consciousness hacking technologies. They offer a path to discovering and expressing your secret self. In this way, you can see art as another form of spiritual technology, if you choose to use it that way. I want to thank Stephen Taylor for being a guest on this podcast, and thank you too for joining us. You can follow Stephen on his Instagram, M75. That's the letter M, 70 spelled out, and the number five. If you like what we're doing here on The Evolver, please share the episode on social media and tell your friends about it at work or like, you know, after your yoga class. You can also leave us a star rating on iTunes, which is really appreciated and helps us a lot. And send us an email at theevolver at evolver.net, N-E-T. We're getting these really cool questions, and eventually, at some point, we're going to do a show where I answer some of them. And if you got a good question, we'd love to get it from you, so please send it in. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast, The Evolver Podcast, and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the entire ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks from The Human Experience, 
Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.